Welcome, one and all, to the Dire Ed Podcast, where we talk about the truly dire state of higher ed. I'm your host, Professor Andrew R. Timming, and I don't know much, but I know something is wrong with the modern university, and I want to understand what's going on and what we can do about it. Thanks for joining the conversation, and be sure to visit us at direed.com. That's D-I-R-E hyphen E-D dot com. All right, let's do this. It is my pleasure to be speaking with Martin Parker. Martin Parker is Professor of Organization Studies at the University of Bristol in the UK and lead for the Inclusive Economy Initiative. His last few books were Shut Down the Business School, published by Pluto in 2018, Anarchism, Management and Organization, published by Rutledge in 2020, and Life After COVID-19, published by Bristol University Press in 2020. He's currently writing about weeds and the philosophy of organization. And I'm wondering, is that a typo? Are you writing about weeds or weed? <laughs> well, I'm writing about weeds. I got fascinated by the idea, well, I've been fascinated for a long time, but the idea, the kind of concept of organization and uh, and its relationship to disorganization. Uh, so I decided to think about that by thinking about weeds. Okay. All right. Just to double check, because it could have gone the other way too. You never know what these things. Yes, it could. <laughs> All right. Well, um, how how are you, Martin? I'm I'm glad to have you on the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. It's a lovely sunny morning here in Bristol in England uh, and looking forward to talking to you, Andrew. Great. So tell me, what the hell is going on in Leicester right now? That's right. This is something of a, uh, uh, a shock for lots of us. So shall I just sort of give you a history of, uh, of Leicester, a very quick history for your listeners, and then... Um, briefly explain what's happening right now. A little background. So, yeah, I think, because not everybody will know about um, about the history of Leicester and so on. Mm-hmm. So um, Leicester, for those people outside the UK, is a small town in the Midlands. Um, uh, well, not small, but, you know, a medium-sized city in the Midlands. Um, since 2003, it's been the home to um, probably the kind of key critical management uh, school um, in the world, I would guess. Uh, so uh, Gibson Burrell um, moved there to become head in 2003. I followed him very quickly afterwards, as well as a whole bunch of reasonably well-known and well-published critical scholars. Um, and then for the following um, 12, 13 years, uh, the school was uh, a really quite a crucial place for the production and reproduction of a whole bunch of ways of thinking, teaching and so on about critical perspectives on work, management, economy, and so on. Um, It was uh, politically a complicated process, but really we were protected by the then Vice-Chancellor, Bob Burgess, who was a sociologist and was very keen on the idea that his uh, school of management should be uh, social scientifically respectable. Um, And so he had no particular problem with people who called themselves Marxists or post-structuralists or anything else. in 2015, a new vice chancellor was appointed and you could kind of feel the change, really, in terms of the um, the lack of enthusiasm for a critical school. Um, uh, a new uh, dean was appointed who was clearly uh, uh, intending to kind of mainstream the school to make the school much more conventional. Um, there was then a sort of a, a whole process of, well, rather complicated process of a series of deans 
um, until uh, in January this year, uh, it was announced that the kind of the final purge was going to take place. Um, and 16 of my friends and colleagues um, were uh, selected for redundancy on the basis that they taught and researched critical management studies and or political economy. Is this uh, a, a little, this is uh, sorry, is this yeah, yeah. A, a little deja vu for you in the sense that didn't Warwick University go through a, a sort of cleansing a few years back of not critical management, but IR scholars? It did. And I mean, there's, there's more than just the Warwick experience as well. So before I worked at Leicester, I worked at the University of Kiel, um, again, a small, small university in the Midlands um, of, the, of England. Um, and that went through a kind of purge of industrial relations scholars, too. Um, I briefly went to Warwick. Yeah, that's right. This is this is back in sort of 2000 and, uh, 2002, 2003. Didn't, I was, didn't they shut down the business school? They literally um, closed it down, didn't they? If I recall, and then they reconstituted it. Kind of. It was. It, I mean, effectively, there were a series of small schools. There was a school of a, well, I mean, department, a department of economics, a department of industrial relations, and a mm. department of management. Mm -hmm. um, and they were reconfigured to become a business school, but that involved um, encouraging a lot of the more critical people to leave. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I'd spent a couple of years at Warwick uh, later. So I left Leicester, went to Warwick, hated Warwick, came back to Leicester. Mm -hmm. And at Warwick, we had a similar kind of thing, but it, it was less of a targeted um, purge there. It was more of a sense that uh, Warwick wanted to become like a big American school. Um, and so anybody who didn't fit that profile, whether they were critical or not, mm -hmm. um, was uh, encouraged to leave. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really want to hang around there very long. So I went back to Leicester, which is where, where all my friends were in the first place. But this is a regular process. And, and, and you know, you talk to any UK academic um, and they will tell you stories about other places. Um, Exeter, Imperial for a while, um, Manchester, where there's been these kinds of um, uh, waves of hostility towards certain kinds of critical scholars. Mm -hmm. And if I understand the situation correctly at Leicester, it wasn't just the business school that was targeted. There was an attempt to also um, cut out, was it classics, um, some of the English department, medieval history. There was a whole series of disciplines that were targeted. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, it's, a, this, it's, a, it's not just about the School of Business. There are 145 academics targeted for uh, potential redundancy at Leicester. Mm -hmm. um, the background to that is some very substantial and rather difficult debts that the university needs to pay. Um, many of those related to building, but I think that the financial problems for many institutions have been exacerbated by COVID, of course. Mm -hmm. So it's exposed the kind of financial infrastructure of lots of lots of universities. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that we, effectively there are there are proposals to make people redundant uh, across a whole series of different parts of the university. Uh, the justifications are different in each case. For example, the justification for the cuts to uh, classics um, and medieval English are that they want to uh, decolonize the curriculum uh, to make it more relevant to uh, contemporary students and so on. Um, oddly, the justification within the School of Business is precisely the opposite. They want to make the curriculum more vanilla and get rid of the critical stuff. But there's no particular coherence to this strategy. Um, and I guess there isn't any particular logic in terms of uh, what's going on within the business school in terms of generating more income either. 
um, the business school for many, many years um, has been a profitable part of the university. Um, and I suspect, like many universities, right the way across the globe, uh, when they get into financial problems, they are effectively looking to certain kinds of schools to solve them. Um, psychology, law, uh, management being fairly obvious ones where you can recruit lots of postgraduate students and generate unencumbered income. Lots of Australian universities would be in a very similar position, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to put my head around this situation and I'm having a hard time articulating um, how, I, how I'm thinking about this. So let me just try and bounce a few ideas off of you and just get your thoughts on it. <clears throat> so the, the, the conventional wisdom is that university faculty, um, pretty much across the board, tend to be uh, left-leaning people. And in fact, if you look at the statistics, that's also um, likely the case among administrators, administrators as well. So if you look at statistics in America, for example, it's very much the case that you, you're very unlikely to come across a conservative or a liberal in the classic Adam Smithian sense of the word mm -hmm. um, conservative. Now, with that background in mind, it's very curious that a university would be targeting a traditionally left-wing um, group of scholars, those who would identify as critical management scholars. So I guess what I'm trying to understand, is it possible that universities are actually biased in favor of left-wing thinking, but not the kind of left-wing thinking that I don't know how to, how to put it, not the kind of left-wing thinking that is too far to the left from their own <laughs> perspective. You know what I mean? It's like, is, is, yeah. <clears throat> is that the way universities operate? Mm. Is that what's going on here? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be careful of generalizing what, how universities are operating right the way across the globe, because I think there's some you know, specificities to national systems that are really important here. Mm. In the UK, remember that we've seen a very rapid process of marketizing the university. Really, over the last 20 years or so, universities have effectively been privatized. So even though they're still receiving state support for uh, STEM subjects and um, the student loan system is, is, is backed by the state, effectively, they're creatures of the market now. Now, you know, we would expect correspondingly that uh, they would then be growing the things that sell and trying to get rid of the things that don't. Um, there was a report only yesterday about um, uh, worry about the low numbers of students who are taking up language degrees, for example, um, uh, you know, a consequence of the market. There was something like one in seven students are now doing variants of business and management in the UK higher education. But effectively, that means that certain parts of the university are really seen to be the cash machines, you know, the generators of the revenue that allow you to keep the chemistry department open and so mm. on. And Leicester is caught in exactly that kind of stick, I think. Um, it needs to be making a lot of cash from certain parts of its operations in order to cross-subsidise the other parts of its operations, and management's a key part of that. Now, the other assumption here, of course, is that students want to buy vanilla. In other words, that... Um, the uh, if you have stuff that's too critical that talks too much about social justice or the environment or gender or whatever else that somehow that will put students off so there's a kind of rush towards the center there which is exacerbated i think by things like um, uh, ranking systems uh, both in terms of institutions and journals and all the rest of it that really encourages a kind of homogeneity of um, of product if you like yeah. Does that so, help to kind it, of 
contextualize it. It does, right. And you're absolutely right about the nuances between countries. I, was, I guess I was speaking primarily from the American university system, which is where I originally uh-huh. come from. Um, yeah. But how much of this is, you mentioned the, the sort of student perspective and, and what the student wants. How much of these decisions are driven by student demands? And how does one argue against a university when it says, for example, we just don't have enough students to, um, to take these types of courses. And I'm not specifically talking about critical management studies. I am mm. this maybe more broadly talking about, you know, medieval history, you know, how, how, how can we frame an argument to senior management in universities mm. that it's important to offer these subjects regardless of whether or not there's sufficient demand for them? It's a difficult argument to make, isn't it? It is a difficult argument to make, and it's one that's, uh, that I'm very often confronted with in terms of the consequences of certain kinds of market logics. In other words, if institutions are just like shops selling stuff, then, of course, they would be foolish to stock the things that don't sell uh, and, um, uh, and, and should concentrate on the things that do. That raises a broader question about exactly what universities are for within any given uh, society. I assume that we want universities to be producing architects and engineers and probably people who speak different languages, um, as well as possibly people who've got some kind of qualifications in business and management or sociology or whatever else. So in a sense, there's a, there's a kind of question here about the steering of universities by any central government, isn't there? If we treat them as, um, as simply creatures of the market, then we can have no steering over that. The other question, and kind of what you started with, really, is what do students want? Well, that's a kind of puzzling question because it's not obvious exactly what students want. Students want to do particular kinds of subjects, obviously. So, you know, they they will be interested in studying biology, for example. They won't necessarily know what biology means when they pick those subjects. They won't have an idea about a particular kind of evolutionary biology or a concentration on certain kinds of um, uh, ecosystems or something like that. It seems to me that business and management is in a very similar position to that. So simply saying that you want to study business and management doesn't mean that you're not interested in zero carbon economics or in questions of diversity and inclusion um, or in thinking about alternative business structures, which uh, you know involve more work participation or ownership or control. Um, all of those things seem to me to be uh, open questions which particularly at the moment when we're facing a species-threatening crisis, which seems to be exposing some of the problems with conventional capitalist economics, that we should be exploring. So not to do that stuff is not written into the kind of the contract that we've got with a student who wants to study business and management. Mm. I think there's a certain irony in this too, in the sense that if, if you're really thinking about what makes a good manager, I would say some of the best managers are people who understand what Marx was trying to say. You know, if you understand the critique of the, the system, you're much better able to manipulate and maneuver and shape that system than if you don't understand the critique. So couldn't you even make a conventional business argument that it's really important for the future of, of management to have access to critical ideas because it does kind of in some strange ironic way actually help them become better managers i think you could certainly say that and you could probably say that about any kind of complex human practice couldn't you if you want to understand something about 
you know, how a bridge gets put up than understanding people who are being critical of current theories about, I don't know, you know, the, the, the strength of steel or something would be a smart move. Mm. Um, I assume that any broad classification of knowledge involves advancing through various forms of critique. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you should suppress critique in order to sell the stuff sounds positively stupid and dangerous to me. You know, even even on a kind of broadly pluralist line, it sounds stupid and dangerous. But I also think, you know, that it's more relevant than that in the sense that my strong conviction um, is that we need to be thinking about alternative forms of organizing, different ways in which we construct the relationship between human beings and things that allow us to make and exchange stuff. Um, And the reason we need to do that. Yeah, what you, well, it, I, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so so I mean, the business school, in a sense, is 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 a place that fetishizes the corporate form and shareholder value. So it assumes that a particular mode of social and economic organisation is the most effective one, um, and that it should be celebrated, explored, and so on. And that any organisations that don't fit into that sort of broad category um, are somehow immature or irrelevant or nostalgic or whatever else. I, I would rather think of organizing as a kind of an open concept. So, you know, how do we organize in order to deal with, say, the imperatives of zero carbon or the um, uh, the fact that you know, much of the population of the global north don't feel any efficacy over their understanding of the economy or whatever it might be. So how organization in that sense becomes a kind of an open question. So if we take, for example, uh, you mentioned a, a book I published earlier this year on and earlier last year on anarchism. The anarchist tradition, for example, which you know, most people would regard to be an extremely uh, critical, hostile, oppositional tradition, is one that's taken the concept of organisation very seriously for the last two centuries. Talked about, you know, how do people come together in order to retain a sense of decision making and democracy? What's the appropriate levels at which decision making should be done? What kind of leadership do we want? Is it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's what anarchism has been for the last 200 years, an extended mediation on what it means to organise. But why would you not teach that stuff? It's bizarre not to include it and simply to assume that management, in terms of, you know, certain kinds of hierarchical assumptions about command and control, is the only way that human beings can organise together. It's um, empirically unwarranted and theoretically stupid. How much of the, I know it's hard for you to, to speak on behalf of management at Leicester, <laughs> but I'm just wondering um, in your yeah. own view, how much of this yeah. is driven by um, economic considerations and how much of this is driven by a sense of just wanting to stifle speech that is disagreed with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's three things going on here. So one is, yes, the... Uh, the economic problems that the university is going through are resulting in some, um, uh, to my mind, some fairly poor decisions being made about sweating the assets. Okay, so in other words, concentrating on um, uh, generating revenue from certain places. Secondly, um, out of the 16 people in the School of Business who are threatened with redundancy, eight of them are union activists. Hmm. Um, The union at Leicester has been through... In the last decade, I think three other attempts, I might be wrong about that in terms of the numbers, but but certainly at least two, probably three other attempts to make people redundant and a series of disputes within UK higher education, more generally about pensions and workload and a whole series of other things. So the uh, 
well, let's let's say attacking the union is, is one element of this. The third one, I think, is yes, that that the manager's right to manage at the university um, is one that is um, is kind of assumed and is not really being uh, supported by many of the people within the School of Business and elsewhere who've seen you know a decade of what they regard to be relatively poor management and are consequently uh, very critical about the way that the uh, university has been run, particularly under the previous vice chancellor, but increasingly under the present one too. Wow. Um, so that presents a kind of a really toxic mixture, I think. Management are not trusted, uh, and now they're behaving in, in ways that lead them not to be trusted. Mm. You mentioned that uh, some union activists may have been uh, targeted, you said eight of the, the 16. Eight, that's right. Eight of the 16. Uh, yeah. I, I'm just sort of curious, uh, maybe I'm, I'm more skeptical of, of unions than most people, um, but I'm just mm-hmm. curious, you know, how much can we trust the UCU to actually handle this situation? Because um, mm-hmm. my, I mean, I guess I'm not going to say, there are good activists in the UCU, but my experience of the union, having you know lived in the UK for for several years, um, is that it's not really at a, at a sort of national level um, very distinguishable from a university vice chancellor. Although I, I recognize things have changed, there's a new regime and there's a new general secretary. So maybe it's just me thinking of the old way in which that union was operated. But for me, it didn't offer much of a um, a critique or a, a sense of resistance against management it was almost like a, a tool of management. Mm. Yeah, I think that's been a criticism that lots of people have had of UCO over the last uh, couple of years. And in some ways, the, um, there's a sort of longer history there. The UCU used to be, um, well, it was a merger between the uh, AUT, the previous university teacher union, and the AUT was very often regarded more as a professional association and a trade union in terms of its um, uh, opposition uh, to management. Um, I think the new, um, uh, the new uh, head of the UCU, Joe Grady, um, is a breath of fresh air. She's, a, she's um, of a different generation. It's also worth mentioning that she used to work at the University of Leicester in the School of Management. Uh, so she's going to take a very personal interest in some of these things. And I think a new generation of activists are coming through UCU and also being kind of schooled in a much more oppositional um, form of management and consequently a much more oppositional understanding of what trade unionism in universities means. Uh Uh That's great. Uh, Just in the last few minutes here, um, Mm. I want to put you on the spot and imagine that you (laughs) are the vice chancellor of Leicester. Do you have any yeah. uh, any uh, aspirations towards that, or are you quite happy <laughs> <laughs> where you are right now? Yes. Oh, yes. Actually, yes. I'd love to be a vice chancellor. <laughs> uh, so let's assume let's assume that you are, and okay. you know, realistically, so you you recognize that there are financial challenges, uh, you know, that the university yeah. faces, and I think we're all um, sympathetic to to that situation. But mm-hmm. how? how are you going to manage the university in a way that's different from the way a typical vice chancellor has managed a university in the UK? And I know it's hard to generalize, but you know, Mm. just humor me. (laughs) Okay. Can I give you two different answers? So one um, would be an answer specifically about business and management. And as I've said, remember one in seven students in the UK are doing some version of business and management. So this is not an inconsequential part of the economy of the sector. 
Yeah. And that's really to double down on centers of responsibility and the environment and all the rest of it. You know, we need a rapid change in our business systems. Most of the kids who are coming to university understand that. They have been taught about the environment and the problems of uh, climate crisis um, since they were kids. What they don't know is what to do about it. So what we need to be teaching them, and this is a matter of you know, urgency, is about a zero carbon economy as well as, you know, more inclusive economy, a more diverse economy, et cetera, et cetera, just transition and so on. And that, it seems to me, is um, absolutely necessary and something that a vice chancellor, say, at the University of Leicester, could really take a lead on. And that could be a market position. You say, you know, if you want to learn about the new economy that we're going to have to produce in order to, you know, save you lot and your kids, then come to Leicester. Yeah, come and come and spend your money with us and we'll teach you about those things rather than just reproducing the business as usual shit. So that could be a market position uh -huh. in terms of the broader questions about running a university. They're really, really difficult because vice chancellors are caught now in a kind of uh, a, a series of really incompatible problems. On the one hand, they are regarded to be trustees for a set of institutions which um, uh, a kind of cradling the responsibilities of current and future generations. On the other hand, they are told to be the chief executives of large corporations competing against each other in a marketplace. Yeah. They've been pretty supine in accepting that latter position. So I don't think one vice chancellor is going to make a lot of difference. You know, I mean, maybe if it was a key institution and it really did take, it struck out on its own in a sense. But collectively, VCs do have a kind of influence, I think. Um, universities are a big part of the economy and um, a series of uh, regionally influential institutions. Um, and I think they should start <laughs> stepping on the front foot a bit more uh, instead of simply accepting their position as um, uh, chief, overpaid chief executives. Now that you've given me that answer, I, I have to admit I was being a bit <laughs> facetious when I asked you if you wanted to be a vice chancellor. But then you also may know that um, Nick Beach is now a vice chancellor and you could argue he comes from a bit of Nick. That. yeah where's where's Nick of EC oh he's the vice chancellor of uh Middlesex now if I'm not mistaken wow is he yeah, yeah. oh goodness fair, oh well fair, done Nick fairly new to the role but it just it, it okay. just occurred to me that maybe it's not um, yeah. maybe it's not yeah. such a crazy off the wall you know idea for you know someone like you to consider a role like that because um yeah do it do a podcast with him all right. All right. I'll ask him. Yeah. Yeah. I will. Yeah. Yeah. Ask him if I can have a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't do that. I'm perfectly happy at Bristol. <laughs> I know you are. Oh, well, that, that's great. You know, I really appreciate your, your time, Martin. It's um, good of you to, to sit down and chat with me about these issues. Nice. And, uh, it's great for you to provide this kind of background to what's going on in Leicester because, you know, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast will tend to be. Um, here in Australia, and I imagine I have uh -huh. some American listeners as well. And, um, you know, hopefully when this whole COVID thing passes, maybe you can come down and visit us sometime in Melbourne. I would love that. That would be uh, the, 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 the most excitement I have at the moment is going to my gate to put my bins out. So the idea of a trip to Australia <laughs> fills me with unreasonable excitement. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right, Martin, well, you take care of yourself and uh, keep in touch. Yeah. Thanks for doing this, Andrew. Thanks, mate.